0: I think part of the inescapable appeal of folklore is its intimacy and its significance for the people who carry it on and shape it, reshape it in some way. It's such an essential part of people's lives, whether they put a label to it or not. and if. In this complex and troubled world, we have cause to appreciate the beauties and the positive forces around us, the potential that people have. We really need to understand and appreciate what makes all these people who they are, what they are, what they value what's important to them. I think if we spent a little more time looking at what people hold so dear that they pass knowledge and art and practices on to their friends, their children, their communities, if we can appreciate that, we will be better people for it and the world will be a better place for it.
1: That was folklorist and recipient of the 2010 Best Lomax Hall's National Heritage Fellowship, Judith McCullough. Welcome to Artworks, the program that goes behind the scenes with some of the nation's great artists to explore how art works. I'm your host, Josephine Reed. Scholar Judith McCullough has devoted her life to the preservation and celebration of folk art. During her 35 years at the University of Illinois Press, she spearheaded the renowned series Music in American Life. The 130 books she's published cover all aspects of American music and have won 20 ASCAP awards. And as if that isn't enough, Judith also created the series Folklore and Society, whose 16 books stand as models of folklore scholarship. Because of her contributions to the preservation, understanding, and documentation of American folk culture, and her great passion for folk art, Judith McCullough is the recipient of the 2010 Bess Lomax Hawes National Heritage Fellowship. I had the opportunity to talk to Judith about American folk culture. Here's our conversation. Judy, tell me a a little bit about your background. Where were you born?
0: I was born in a very small town in central north Illinois, called Spring Valley. And my father worked on the railroad. He worked in the roundhouse. And I made my way to the Spring Valley Hospital. Apparently, I made headlines then as the 100th baby to be born there. But I wasn't aware of the honor at the time. And then uh, we moved down to Peoria, uh, where he, my dad, worked at a Caterpillar Tractor it was still rural enough that when we looked out the back window we could see an old German farmer, Mr. Scher, ploughing with his horses against the setting sun and during the day. How did you become interested in studying folk life? I'd gotten a Fulbright to study Sanskrit in Belgium at the Free University of Brussels in 1958-59. And the summer before I went over, there was a folklore institute at Indiana University. It ran for, oh, I don't know, six to eight weeks. It was held every four years, and all kinds of people came, Uh, folk nicks, uh, serious students, scholars, world-renowned people, And everybody was equal there. It was the most exhilarating experience I'd ever had. The force of it was that I was so intrigued by this uh, field of study that really opened up the whole world to research and contemplation that I came to Indiana and entered the folklore program there where I eventually got my degree When you
1: were a kid growing up, did your parents Mm -hmm. listen to the kind of music that you would come to love? Was there bluegrass or blues or folk music, country music in the house?
0: There was not that much music at home. My mom sang a couple of little ditties, but that was pretty much the extent of it. Looking back about the only traditional music I remember hearing was uh, in the church, This was the Apostolic Christian Church in Peoria. It's related as much to the Amish and Mennonites as to anything else. And there was very slow, unaccompanied, four-part harmony singing there with a man leading the group. The men always led everything. And uh, some old, old pieces there that was probably the extent of the tradition I heard. When did you
1: first become attracted to music in the way that you were? Because your dissertation was about a song.
0: Yes, it was. Uh, it was about uh, an old lyric song called In the Pines. It goes in the pines, in the pines, where the sun never shines and you shiver when the cold wind blows. There are variants on it. That interest... Developed through the folk music revival in the early 1950s when I was at Cottey College. I had an instructor there who had some records of Burl Ives and Richard Dyer Bennett and um, people like that. In fact, Dyer Bennett came to Nevada, Missouri and gave a concert, and I went. And I was struck by one thing he said, which was, I am not a folk singer. I am a singer of folk songs. I thought, my goodness, that's an interesting distinction, and started thinking about that. Had a little phonograph, uh, began buying records, and went eventually, fairly quickly actually, from the interpreters of folk song and folk music to people who we now would call traditional singers, Mm -hmm. the, the folk, and came to loved the sounds and the repertoire that they had and was glad to learn about the lives that they lived and why the music mattered so much to them. So through the years I kept that interest, um, built up a library, went to concerts and programs and when it came time to write a dissertation I settled on this text-tune study of In the Pines, which I still like, which is a sign of a good song, I would say. There were some dreadful interpretations of it, mainly in the pop field. But in the main, I still love to hear that song, and um, I'm trying to revive it at some of the bluegrass festivals I go to, mainly down at Bean Blossom, Indiana. And there's a ripple of recognition in the crowd. Bill Monroe had a big hit on that. <laughs>
1: in the pines why is it that that song has 160 variations why is it that that song endures
0: well there were 160 variants that I found and that was in 1970 I think there must be thousands of them out there that simply did not get documented in some way or another and uh, there are occasionally people still surface who have a non-standard version of that in their memories. It's partly the music, it's a haunting melody, and it's partly the mystery of the words, the idea of darkness, isolation, uh, the wind whistling through the pines. Uh, In some of the older variants, there's um, a story of a very macabre accident with a train where a, a person, usually a woman, gets beheaded and they find her head in the driver's wheel, and they never find her body. This, this is memorable, and it's, it's set, very simple sets of lyrics that hint at a story. It doesn't spell it all out, but it's very mysterious. The combination of simple but powerful melody and, and intriguing lyrics proved too much to forget completely and people do carry it on. It's more popular in some eras and then less popular, but in tradition, things do wax and wane that way. Even the study of tradition waxes and wanes. A ballad study was once where it was at, ballad and folktale, and now that's more of an optional study in many places. And something else has risen to the top.
1: Well, you've devoted your career to folklore. When you first went into it, I would imagine the field, especially when you're looking
0: at American folklore, was quite small. When I first went to Indiana University in the folklore program, all of the students and the faculty could gather around one table on the third floor of the library. That program has grown. Other programs have uh, sprung up uh, since then. There are ups and downs in the field. By its nature, it it absorbs and draws upon, I think, potentially every discipline in the world. That's one of the magic features of folklore. Uh, Archer Taylor, who was the great riddle and proverb scholar, used to say, file away everything you learn. You never know when you're going to need that bit of information. I tried to take that to heart. But because uh, folklore is not that readily defined the way English has come to be defined as a discipline or history or women's studies or anthropology, it has sometimes had a hard time finding a home in the academic institutions And so through the years, uh, much of the vibrancy of the field has come to rest in what we call the public sector, that is, uh, arts agencies, uh, humanities councils, the National Park Service, out in the historical societies, out in the public, wherever an, an awareness of tradition might be valued. And that has really grown since I got started in the field to the extent where now I think about half of all folklorists do work in the public sector uh, rather than in academic settings. When I first went to work at the press, I remember talking with... We're talking
1: about uh, University of Illinois Press.
0: Yes, to the University of Illinois Press. When I first started at the University of Illinois Press as an editor... I remember colleagues asking me, what are you doing now that you've graduated? And I said, oh, I'm an editor at the University of Illinois Press. Oh, they said, that's too bad. It's too bad you couldn't get a real job. (laughs) That was in 72 when I began there. And about 10 years later, when the job market got a little tighter, people started sidling up to me at the meetings and saying, how did you ever land that great job in publishing? And I just had to smile and said, you could do this too if you tried and encourage your students to keep their eyes and ears open for all opportunities. So that's, that's just one sign of how things have changed.
1: Well, you did tremendous work at the press, and among the things that you accomplished was editing the series Music in American Life. That was a very, I, very important series.
0: Yes, it continues to be an important series. My colleague, Lori Matheson, is doing a tremendous job carrying that on. Uh, when I left the press in 2007, I had uh, published about 130 titles in the series. And I had two agendas, really. There was the obvious one of trying to represent... All aspects of American music and music in America that is old and new and sacred and secular and classical and pop and traditional and so on and so forth. And my other agenda which came more by example than uh, than overtly was to show that there are many different ways to write about American music. Some people are good at doing histories, some case studies, uh, some bibliography, some discography, some memoir, some biography, uh, some criticism and thought pieces. There are all kinds of different ways to let us learn something more than we already knew, things that we should know that sometimes we didn't even know we should know. So I'm, yes, I'm very proud of that series. You
1: know, what's so interesting about the field of folklore, as you pointed out, it's multidisciplined. It literally goes across the board from visual arts to music to storytelling and literature. And while your focus in this series was on music, there's a way where you really had to have your arms around all of this.
0: Well, the world is a big thing to get your arms around. I have to admit that. But it's a challenge that's worth uh, rising to. And the the Folklore and Society series, which was a, a finite series, unlike the Music in American Life series, which at Illinois is still going on, that was designed to set the best models possible for how to use folklore as one more tool, not as a novelty, not as something quaint, but as a very legitimate uh, perspective on the world and on how we can make sense of the world and uh, share our insights with other people. Well, part of what you did
1: with both Music in American Life and Folklore and Society is you helped create a model for
0: how to write about this. Well, I would hope so. Heaven knows I tried, and heaven knows each book is its own special contribution, and each book is different. Each author is different. Each author has something new to offer and a little bit different view of the world. And that I always found exciting. In in publishing, there's a lot of grub work. A lot of committees, a lot of paperwork, and the usual that goes with any job where you sit and stare at a computer screen or get on the phone for a while. But to have the chance to create something special and to work with something new every single day, that is a good kind of work to be engaged in. And I really would not give that up for anything Archie Green once said, if you're happy in your work, you can be happy in your life. And he was the master of labor lore explorations, and he, he knew that was true.
1: In the work that you do, you're both reclaiming culture and preserving culture, but it's a living thing, and it's still vibrant today. It's not a museum piece.
0: No, not at all. Tradition is all around us. And if I talk to you long enough, Joe, I'm sure we could find a lot of fascinating heritage that you have perhaps not thought about in those terms, and perhaps you have. And I could probably think of some more things like old recipes and sayings. It's and funny. I was just thinking about food
1: when you said that. <laughs>
0: oh. <laughs> it's getting close to supper. Time. It must be. <laughs> Yeah, it's the same thrust that the American Folklife Center's enabling legislation uh, refers to the the need to preserve and present American folk life so that we all can uh, benefit from what it has to teach us. Now, it's it's very much a living thing, and I can't imagine it tradition not being out there. You knew Bess Lomax Hawes, didn't you? Oh, I was privileged to know Bess, yes indeed. I was. I served on uh, two or three uh, NEA folk arts panels and then met her whenever she came to the American Folklore Society meetings of course and really got to know her over the years. She was a most marvelous, truly marvelous, remarkable woman and I can see her still, with her hair a little frazzled, pushing her glasses up on the top of her head. And during breaks, especially at the panel meetings, just wandering around and talking with us and saying, you know, I wonder what would happen if we thought about doing this. She would kind of murmur at us. And wouldn't you know, when we reconvened the panels someone would raise a hand and said, you know, I wonder what would happen if we did thus and so, as though that person had thought of it out of whole cloth. And Bess would sit there and push her glasses up on her head again and say, you know, that's a wonderful idea. And then we go on, and and she was uh, very smart. She was very wise. Uh, Some years ago, I began talking with her about writing her story because she had such an interesting life and accomplished so much and really changed the course of, of folklore in this country. She was a hero to so many people. And she thought about it and said, yes, I really should do that. And if eventually she did, when I was still at the University of Illinois Press, she sent her manuscript in, and it was wonderful I made a few suggestions, and she took them under advisement. About that time, I retired, and so my successor, Lori Matheson, had the privilege of of working with her and eventually publishing her memoir in 2008. Uh, That was called Sing It Pretty. And I would uh, commend that to anyone who was interested in Bess. Interested in NEA, interested in folklore. It's uh, it's quite a wonderful, readable story, and I'm glad that she did bring this off and shared with us what she wanted to share with us. There is more than enough to inspire all of us to try to do as much as she did in the lives given to us. Since you knew Beth and, and knew her well, What
1: went through your mind when you got the phone call, I'm assuming, from Barry Burgey, and
0: you were told that you're receiving the Bess Lomax Hawes Award? When Barry laid that news on me, he sent me reeling. It is such an honor to have an award named for Bess, to have that association with her. It's an honor I can't even begin to describe. As I said, she was a hero of mine and I wish she were here that I could thank her personally. So maybe she's smiling down, we don't know.
1: Well, it seems like it's come full circle. Oh yes. Judy McCullough, many, many congratulations. I think anyone who's interested in folklore from this country owe oh, you a great debt as well. And oh, thank i thank you, Joe, you. very much. That was folklorist and recipient of the 2010 Bess Lomax Hawes National Heritage Fellowship, Judith McCullough. You've been listening to artworks produced at the National Endowment for the Arts. Adam Campy is the musical supervisor. Excerpts from the traditional ballad In the Pines, performed by Bill Monroe, used courtesy of Universal Music Group. The artworks podcast is posted every Thursday at www.arts.gov. Next week, we celebrate Hispanic Heritage Month with a conversation with author Rudolfo Anaya. To find out how art works in communities across the country, keep checking the Artworks blog, or follow us at NEA Arts on Twitter. For the National Endowment for the Arts, I'm Josephine Reed. Thanks for listening.